The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. You're watching Tuesday's edition of Squawk Box with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Losing the label, China's offshore yuan soars to its highest level in six months after the U.S. drops its branding of Beijing as a currency manipulator. Just a day ahead of the expected signing of the phase one trade deal. Positive sentiment fueling Asian shares to seven-month peaks as Chinese exports and imports make better than expected gains in December. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq notch fresh all-time highs boosted by tech gains. But it's the big banks that take the spotlight as JP Morgan, Citigroup and Wells Fargo get ready to kick off earnings season. Quote, nothing short of madness, US officials reportedly slammed the UK at Huawei ahead of a key decision on whether to allow the Chinese tech giant access to Britain's 5G rollout. As we said in the headlines, China's yuan strengthens to its highest level since July after the U.S. Treasury Department removed its label of the country as a currency manipulator. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said that China has made, quote, enforceable commitments to refrain from competitive devaluation. Washington first tagged the label to China in August when it accused Beijing of driving down the yuan to gain an unfair trade advantage. China has reported uh, a 7.6% rise in dollar-denominated exports, meanwhile, in December, beating expectations. Its first rise in exports since July, signaling a potential recovery in demand following a preliminary trade agreement between the US and Beijing. Imports also rose above estimates, whilst the country's trade surplus increased. On an annual basis, exports rose 0.5%. Meanwhile, Chinese Vice Premier Liu He has arrived in Washington ahead of a ceremony with President Trump this week to sign the Phase 1 trade deal. Let me take you to some of the market action we saw in session yesterday as fresh records were notched up in the backdrop for the S&P and the Nasdaq. Uh, the peaks that we saw, you could see for the S&P, 3288 and 9273 for the NASDAQ. The gain, percentage gains, much firmer for the tech-heavy NASDAQ. 1% in the green versus what you saw on the Dow, about a third of a percent. Interestingly, though, tech having a bearing on all major indices with Apple, the standout contributor for the three major indices in session yesterday. And when it came to sectors, tech and industrial, seeing fresh records into the close, communication services at its highest level since October 2001. So how are investors playing this risk on mood? You can see very much through the technology and now another layer of it through industrials as well, given that we are counting down to Wednesday's signing of the phase one trade deal. That said, in focus in session today will be the banks, as we see a number of reporters. We mentioned JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo. You to report earnings before the market opened today. So the state that the health of the US banking system, the financials, very much in the spotlight from mortgages to demand for credit to what we're 
focusing on some of those trading numbers through the investment banks. Let me take you to Asia. It's been a fairly strong reaction to the trade news that we've had out. Also, that the uh, pulling back from that labelling of Chinese, China as a currency manipulator for the markets. Australia has hit a fresh record intraday high today. The gains are taking us very close to the, the near 7,000 point mark. China just pairing some of its gains, but we did see some appetite there as stocks touched, touched their highest levels since January 2018. Earlier in the session, Hong Kong has been earlier in the day uh, before this reversal, where we're now down 100 odd points. We were at its highest level since May. And when it comes to the Japanese stock market, it's been at its highest point in month in the trading session today. So you can see those ripples across the market as we all pour through some of the early detail that's filtering out around this trade arrangement. Absolutely. Good morning to you, Karen. Good morning. Yeah, I want to look beyond the fanfare and there's only one man who can look beyond the fanfare and that is Martin Sung who joins us live from Beijing. Martin, all very exciting for markets, all very exciting at a headline level but there are some inconsistencies and questions. For instance, dare I say it, before uh, the uh, trade war began, the US was exporting around about $20 billion worth of farm goods to China. Now we're going to see a miraculous doubling or perhaps even more of that. There are some big questions still. Good morning, my friend. And two, uh, indeed, uh, Steve, uh, good morning, Karen, in Europe uh, as well. Still a lot of question marks hanging over the implementation or execution of this phase one uh, trade deal. Uh, remember, uh, the trade numbers that Karen referred to, uh, a beat on imports especially, but also on exports. Uh, but remember, China has, and the strength all, uh, came especially in imports of U.S. pork as well as U.S. soybeans. But China also very recently did a big forward buy of soybeans from Brazil, which uh, puts into question just how much, how hungry they are, how much demand there is uh, they, they are going to have for, for U.S. soybeans. So that's one. Uh, the second bit is just the numbers themselves. 40 to $50 billion worth of ag buys is what Steve Mnuchin uh, has been touting. We talked to Myron Brilliant from the American Chamber of Commerce earlier today here in Beijing at our bureau, and he was saying more realistically, we're talking about a starting point of $32 billion to work up to a target of $40 to $50 billion. Although having said that, he said, look, at the end of the day, and he's been briefed on phase one, he hasn't actually seen the content or the actual uh, details, the wording, that's only going to come day of, uh, promised by uh, Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, he said, uh, look, uh, the deal is likely to be bigger and also deeper than we initially expected. Look for changes, including China further opening up its financial sector to uh, foreign names, including uh, U.S. ones, although some of this is what China had intended to want to do in any case. But the important thing is it's committing to it in writing on paper in a deal specifically with regards uh, to the U.S. So uh, a lot to share about on the surface. Yes, but many questions remain, especially over implementation and execution of this uh, trade deal. The trade numbers themselves could show that China's economy has troughed and we've got a cyclical rebound underway. But again, look, November numbers showed an improvement. December numbers even better. But two swallows still do not make a summer. They're just on a date, right? You're probably going to want to see January trade numbers to see a trend uh, there. Uh, and also, I want to talk very quickly about the price action that Karen was talking about. Uh, both these uh, news bits help to lift risk sentiment uh, uh, across the world, uh, essentially. But if you take a look at Chinese assets specifically, renminbi, yes, got a lift up to five-month highs. Uh, but take a look at Chinese stocks, though. They actually went the other way. They were down 
could be profit-taking, but according to a trend win over Trendnomics, whom we talk to quite regularly on CNBC and whom we follow on Twitter, she said, look, it could be because equity markets in China have already priced in this good news, including the trade numbers, and therefore it raises the question of whether or not policymakers in Beijing are going to feel the need to provide more stimulus to cushion the economy, if indeed it is troughing. Guys? Marty, I want to just uh, switch over to the technology transfers, which has been a huge part of this arrangement that there has been an agreement to push forward and tackle the elements of Section 301, which triggered this very dispute anyway. There is a, a feeling out there that is a win for the U.S. administration to be able to tackle the technology transfers. But then on the other side, our, our reporter, our colleague in Beijing has been talking about the fact that companies that want to challenge some of the issues must do this as individual companies at the same time risk uh, raising hackles in Beijing. So how do we see this whole technology transfer issue transpiring? Yeah, yeah. I was talking to Myron Brilliant about that uh, from AmCham earlier uh, today as well over at our bureau. And uh, that's uh, that's that sort of gray area. He was a little bit uh, uh, dodgy about that. But, yeah, it does raise the question. I mean, look, the mechanism uh, through which U.S. companies are able to uh, seek redress Simply, uh, the only thing they can do is to lobby with the U.S. government and saying, look, I'm being uh, squeezed or, or, or shorted uh, here. Whether or not they're going to do that, I think, uh, is left to individual companies themselves how much they want to risk potential retribution of any sort from uh, the Chinese government. In essence, it's going to be a businessman asking uh, himself, look, do I wa actually want to risk my business here in China? So that, that remains to be seen how that actually plays out, whether uh, U.S. businesses are actually going to have the gumption uh, to take their case to uh, the U.S. government. On the, the tech story as well, uh, Karen, uh, and I want to link in what's happening with Taiwan as well, the stunning election victory of Tsai Ing-wen over the weekend uh, Saturday. You might think that, look, this is potentially a win uh, for Taiwan because we've also been talking about this pivoting and relocation of tech, Taiwan tech supply chains away from China, where they're very heavily invested, back home to Taiwan to avert U.S. tariffs on China. Uh, theoretically, that could be the case and it could be true. Uh, it could actually uh, benefit them. At the same time, though, what we're hearing is there is a likelihood that the U.S. could pressure Taiwan and therefore TSMC as well as Taiwan's biggest company to uh, cut back on selling chips to Huawei, one of its top customers, along with Apple uh, here uh, as a result of this U.S. ongoing trade war. So Taiwan could, at the end of the day, could end up getting caught in the middle and not in a good way. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. But, yeah, there's trade, there's uh, technology, and there's a much more strategic level, which involves basically militaries, which we'll talk about another time. Guys, back to you. Marty, thank you very much. Appreciate the coverage there. Let's bring in Cliff Tan, East Asia Head of Global Markets Research at MUFG. He joins us live from Hong Kong. Cliff, let me take you to the Yuan because there's a huge focus out there today on the fact that China has been removed among the list of countries that are labelled as a currency manipulator by the Americans. How significant is this when we've got a Yuan that is trading very much in a similar range to when it was in August when this label of currency manipulator was applied? Well... When uh, President Trump blew his top and uh, named China a currency manipulator, uh, for whatever reason, we don't know, uh, but probably because the dollar CNY moved above seven, uh, it continued to weaken uh, in the weeks afterwards. And now it's kind of round trip back actually below where it was uh, before, the, uh, before the designation. So 
I'll leave it to you to interpret, you know, how important this designation is. I mean, we think this is almost completely politics in the last five months, has very little to do with fundamentals or even the markets. So it's just, a, it's just an excuse uh, for a market that wanted to buy RMB anyway. Uh, I would uh, suggest that uh, whatever claims of scientific valid validity uh, that Treasury was trying to cook up uh, for this uh, semi-annual report, uh, that's almost completely gone by now because the designation of China as a currency manipulator uh, was almost laughable uh, in its criteria. Cliff, there's some really interesting um, comments in your thematic on supply chain shifting in and out of China as well. You use the acronym MNCs, talking about those multinational corporations. I'm really fascinated about what you've got to say here. Share it with our viewers and about concerns about supply chain shifting. Sure. I mean, I think uh, major companies around the world obviously have been spending a lot of time thinking about what the Trump trade wars mean for the long run and what it should mean for their supply chains. You know, our basic thesis is that even after phase one is signed, there's still going to be a lot of trade uncertainty out there. You know, I think earlier on you guys pointed out that we're still at a higher level of tariffs, uh, U.S. versus China, uh, than we were on the uh, 31st of July. And we think that you know, there are other areas in which uh, we may see trade tensions, including primarily with Europe, maybe in autos, you know, and actually maybe with Taiwan. The Trump administration lately has been expressing some unhappiness with the fact that Taiwan's trade surplus uh, with the U.S. has been rising because of the reshoring, again, as you mentioned earlier, of uh, trade activity to China. So this game hasn't, um, hasn't ended in our view. So if you're a large multinational in the world, you know, and if you recognize the world has changed in terms of trade, you've got to make some adjustments. And what we said in our piece is that this is basically about getting some flexibility out of China. You're not going to leave China. China is huge. You cannot leave China because it's too important a part of future growth. But you can make some hedges. And you might make some hedges, for example, by moving a line of production or a major product out of China, particularly if you were in China on the last stage of the, of the journey to the United States market. Now, that type of movement is going to be, we think, an order of magnitude bigger than what we saw last year. So what we saw last year was sort of small and medium-sized exporters from China, you know, moving to Vietnam, moving to Mexico, moving to Taiwan, and, you know, and moving maybe a few billion dollars uh, to each of those countries. I think, you know, if a major multinational moves out of China, we're, you know, we're looking at 100 suppliers for that uh, multinational. So, you know, if we had five multinationals move for the whole year this year, that's 500 companies. So we think this, this could be, you know, quite an interesting and a large scale process, not a small process. Uh, Cliff, in that context, let me ask you about the data because it's been a year of pressure for the Chinese with uh, the trade tariffs in force uh, and geopolitical tensions. Yet at the same time, if you look at the December numbers, exports uh, a heady clip of 7.6% year on year, better than the 3.2% expected. Imports also suggesting some domestic appetite up 16.3%, uh, double digits beyond expectations. So what is this conveying about the pressure that China has really been under with these trade tariffs? 
So there's a, you know, there's kind of a view uh, in the markets which we disagree with that as soon as phase one is signed, that we're going back to the good old days. You know, happy days are, are here again. I, I find that hard to believe. So uh, let me quibble a little bit with the December numbers that just came out. As you know, I mean, this year, Chinese New Year is this month. So we're going to get one of those years with some, some timing effects on the data. And usually what happens if you have Chinese New Year in January is that you'll have a lot of uh, activity sort of accelerated back in December to get all the exporting activity done. I expect that that's probably part of what's going on in the December numbers. So because of the quirks of the calendar, you might actually get January numbers, you know, uh, showing a slowing again, which people again will overinterpret, uh, so on. But what's really important for global growth as well as Chinese growth is the whole uh, complex of international trade. What we've seen is that we've seen an unfortunate slowing in the real volume of global trade for most of 2019. And I think if phase one is going to have those magical elixir powers to revive the globe, we're going to see that activity pick up and pretty smartly in the next three to four months. Now in China's numbers, again, we haven't uh, quite got the details uh, down yet uh, when I left the office. But if you look at the data, uh, you know, break it down, the overall uh, slowing of China's uh, export growth, for example, has been, as we, if people pretty much know now, uh, it's been dragged down by slowing of export growth to the U.S. because China has relocated a lot of its trading activity offshore. But on the other hand, you know, you'll see that export activity, say to ASEAN from China, has actually picked up a lot. And that's because, again, of the rejiggering of, you know, where you end up doing the final exporting from. But if you look at China's exports to Europe and to Japan and to other areas where you're looking for demand to support the recovery, it's actually been very weak, along with overall export growth. So if phase one is going to make a difference, we're, we're going to need to see some of those other flows pick up as well. And that's something we're going to be tracking, you know, especially for the next uh, three to four months to see how important phase one is. Our bet is that it's not very important, but we'll, we'll let the data tell oh, us. Oh, that won't stop the markets running, as you know, Cliff, but that's great. Thank you very much indeed for that. Loving your commentary. <laughs> really enjoying reading the copy today as well. Cliff Tan, who is East Asia Head of Global Markets Research at MUFG. And as Karen said, let me look, take a look at the S&P, new record levels as well. Market is um, well, really enjoying the news flow, even if the substance is questionable. Head online, meanwhile, not while you're watching this show. If, if, you, if you're ambidextrous, then you can. Head online to CNBC.com for a full breakdown of what the US and China are expected to sign up to in phase one trade deal tomorrow. Right. Meanwhile, a prominent Chinese government-linked social media account has warned the phase one US-China deal is just the, uh, quote, first round of a game. Tauran notes a blog affiliated with the state-run Economic Daily newspaper posted that the trade war is not over and that there are still many uncertainties down the road. Okay, something we didn't talk about is the China debt levels. Oh my goodness, have a look at these. We'll talk about this extensively, but a rising tide. Uh, not just China, all around the world. Uh, meanwhile, the US budget deficit tops the $1 trillion mark, uh, whilst global debt heads towards new all-time highs. We'll break down the numbers. Just a reminder, if you can't get another Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcast, have a listen and download today's episode. And if you think they're going to be electric, well, they're not really. The opening calls for the European markets, they're up, but not what you might have hoped for if you're still along this market looking for new record levels. We'll be back. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Uh, almost ideal. Those were the words of the Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren uh, using to describe the uh, US economy and the outlook for 2020. He expects the US labor market to stay strong, inflation to approach its 2% target. But here we go. But he also warned officials to watch out for potential risks. There are two potential risks he really highlights here. He believes a tight labor market could lead to a jump in inflation. What? Phillips curve? Really? Okay, well, okay. Could lead to a jump in inflation. But this is what I was interested in. He's also concerned that low interest rates could encourage risk taking. Yes, inflating the value of real estate assets. Now, meanwhile, the US budget deficit has topped $1 trillion for the first time in seven years. I'm sure the president came in and said we were going to get rid of the budget deficit. Anyway, there you go. Uh, he topped, it has topped $1 trillion for the first time in seven years. Data from the Treasury Department shows the shortfall hitting $1.02 trillion in 2019, driven by tax cuts and spending increases. National debt has increased 23.2, uh, increased $23.2 trillion. And again, let's be apolitical. It went up under Obama as well. But this is interesting. And look, even if you don't agree that global debt is a problem, just read the report, OK? This is from the IIF. Global debt is now close to the 253 trillion dollar mark yeah think about that 253 trillion dollars now that doesn't mean much to you let me give you a benchmark debt to gdp for the globe is at a new all-time high what do you think that debt to gdp is ladies and gentlemen 100 percent 150 200 it's on the screen Oh, you've got it. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay, I was going to build up to you. 322%. There you go. They probably weren't reading that bit. Small print. Debt to GDP, 322% for the globe. Now, according to the Institute of International Finance, those figures are set to climb further in 2020, with the group estimating the figure will exceed $257 trillion by the end of the quarter. Now, I know most of you don't care because you're loaded up to the gills and you're buying every asset on the back of it. But for me and those of us who were around in something that was called the GFC after it was called the global debt crisis or the sovereign debt crisis, it has a little bit of interest to me. Back in 2009, way before we labelled it the GFC, it was about sovereign debt. It was about corporate debt. It was about debts that were sold uh, um, erroneously. It was about loan packages of mortgages that just didn't turn out to be what they were. I mean, this report, and I've downloaded the pages and I read Tim Adams' stuff ad infinitum as well, is extraordinary. And here's one thing that I wanted to pick out from this. Chinese debt is growing very fast, 310% of GDP. But as, as a percentage household debt, 55%, nowhere near Western levels yet. But it's the country's 
and in EM that are actually loading themselves up to the gills with debt uh, to service the Chinese boat and rail, uh, belt and road initiative that is with real worries, i.e. a whole host of countries. And listen to this. Uh, a lot of those uh, debts in the uh, countries that are part of the BRE, BRI uh, are either non-rated or have non-investment grade debt rating on their long-term foreign currency. What does that mean if these projects don't turn in the, re the returns that many people expect well, they will? You for the financial crisis and the one lesson we learned was the mispricing of risk. Mispricing what exactly risk. are you taking on in terms of your exposure to an asset and what is the, the credit rating of that particular asset? We saw all sorts of wheeling jelly behind the scenes that lowered what uh, the, the credit pricing was on some of those assets at the time. Now, if you talk about what we are facing in the United States with the near trillion uh, deficit, there was a feeling, uh, say, about 12 months ago or a little bit more, that there was what was called a suicide mission going on. Jeffrey Gundlach used that term, the Bond King. He was worried about the expanding deficit as interest rates were going up. Now we still have an expanding deficit, effectively, but interest rates are not going up. So is it a better situation? The point is, if we move back to a situation where deficit still expanding rates are going up, that could be a problem for borrowing costs. You know I, I have an issue with this, and I've been talking in the wilderness and uh, for a long time. But in case anyone thinks, before you creep in the ground, before anyone thinks that this is an emerging market problem, because I've raised the spectre of emerging market debt as well, listen to this. Household debt to GDP reached a record level in, including Belgium, Finland, France, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, some pretty rich countries there as well. Non-financial corporate debt to GDP topped in Canada, France, Singapore, Sweden, Switzerland, and government debt to GDP hit an all-time high in Australia and the US. This isn't just about emerging markets. This is about the global debt glut. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.